0: Ichabod is a strange word. Its meaning is even more bizarre. The word Ichabod means the glory of God is gone. It can also be rendered the presence of God has been removed. I can't think of anything more horrific than Ichabod. Can you imagine trying to live this world without the presence of God? Can you fathom? trying to navigate the daily grind of life without God's glory being your guiding grace. I cannot imagine trying to raise a family, maintain a marriage, sustain holiness, understand suffering, know the meaning of life, cope with the death of a loved one without God's presence. As I think about it, I must confess that I can't think of any pain more debilitating than Ichabod. I can't think of any circumstance more gruesome than Ichabod. This morning, we continue our seven-part sermon series entitled The Seven Last Words. We come to the fourth statement of Jesus. It sounds as if Jesus is giving us an Ichabod moment. I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 27. I'll begin reading at verse 45. I'll conclude at verse 54. Matthew chapter 27. Let's begin at verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. The tombs broke open and bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of of God. May God add His richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of His perfect Word. You may be seated. It is Mark who tells us that at the third hour they began to crucify Jesus. The Jewish clock begins at 6 a.m. for so for Mark to say that it's the third hour is to say it's 9 a.m. in the morning. They began the crucifixion of Jesus at 9 a.m. It was 9 a.m. when they stretched his arms on the crossbeam. It was 9 a.m. when they nailed rusty spikes through his wrist and his feet. It was 9 a.m. when they hoisted him into the air, causing his cross to come to a bone-crushing thud in the hole in the ground. It was 9 a.m. when they nailed a sign over his head which read, this is the king of the Jews. The crucifixion of Jesus began at nine o'clock in the morning. Matthew tells us that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness covered the land. Once again, according to the Jewish clock, the sixth hour would have been high noon. The ninth hour would have been three o'clock in the afternoon. What Matthew is telling us is when the sun is supposed to be at the apex of his journey across the horizon. That's when God flipped the switch. It's when God turned off the sun and refused for it to shine. This is not the first time that God had tinkered with the sun in the sky. It is Joshua who tells us a story that one day God calls the sun to stand still. It's Isaiah who tells us of of a story where God calls the sun to retreat and go back 10 steps on a sundial. It's Moses who renders for us a story that teaches us that God sent darkness as one of the plagues upon Egypt. That darkness covered the country of egypt only in the land of goshen was there light the land of goshen that's where the israelites lived so god in very symbolic fashion is saying that even in the midst of darkness he gives his light to his people yet this day it's the darkest day in human history there's never been a darker day than this faithful friday it's on this day that jesus was crucified and darkness covered the land. Darkness that was eerie. Darkness that could be felt. Darkness covered the globe. Sometime before three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, aloy lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the fourth of seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross historically this is called the cry of dereliction the word dereliction means abandonment it is a prayer of forsakenness it is when Jesus feels God abandoned God forsaken it is when he feels as if God had turned his back on the son of God my God my God why have you forsaken me This is the hinge statement. What I mean is this. There are three statements before this word from the cross. There are three statements after this word from the cross. This word serves as the hinge upon which our understanding of the cross swivels. The first three statements speak about the undying compassion of Christ. Looking over the crowd, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. When the light of salvation dawned in the heart and mind of that criminal on the cross, he looked to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And scanning the crowd, Jesus laid his eyes on his mother and there nearby the disciple whom he loved And Jesus, in great compassion, said, woman, behold thy son. And to John, the beloved disciple, he said, son, behold thy woman, behold thy mother. And from that moment on, John took care of Mary in his own home. The first three statements speak about the undying compassion of Christ. The next three statements that Jesus will make from the cross speak about the overwhelming redemptive activity of Christ. He will declare I am thirsty. In a very succinct way, he will say, it is finished. And then ultimately, he will lift his eyes to the heavens and say, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But in the midst of all that, Jesus declares this fourth statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ironically, this is the only statement that Matthew records for us. Out of all seven, this is the only one that is found in the gospel of Matthew. It's as if Matthew wants us to hear loud and clear that this is the understanding of the cross. This is the understanding of the gospel, that Jesus died in our place. He died in our stead and literally, physically, visibly, he was God forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of abandonment. It's a prayer of dereliction. It's an Ichabod moment. The glory of God, gone. The presence of God, removed. Ichabod. I wonder if you've ever had a moment like that. Have you ever prayed a a prayer like that? Oh, I know it's hard for us to compare ourselves to Jesus and in this moment and the the cosmic scope of what Jesus is doing in this moment and, and seeking and saving the lost. I realize that in some ways we can't compare, but in some real way we can identify with Jesus, can't we? For have you ever voiced the prayer, my God, my God, why this cancer? My God, my God, why this unemployment and why is it going so long? My God, my God, why Did she cheat on me? My God, my God, why did he leave me and the children to fend for ourselves? My God, my God, why the marital difficulty? My God, my God, why this divorce that I did not ask for? My God, my God, why this brain tumor? My God, my God, why did I get cut from the team? My God, my God, why? Why this? Why me? Why now? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever prayed that prayer? You ever felt as if you've had an Ichabod moment that in some way the glory of God has been removed from your life? That the presence of God somehow has been erased from your life? Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? This question is not just something that Jesus made up on the spot. He's actually quoting psalm 22 it's the opening line of that great psalm and and, and in that psalm um jesus is identifying himself with the author who is david and david wrote the psalm a thousand years before the crucifixion of jesus i submit to you that the reason it was written was not for david necessarily but for christ to come for jesus in that moment is meditating on psalm 22 In that moment of feeling God forsaken and God abandoned, he clings to the word of God. There's a lesson in that, isn't there? That as Jesus hung to make us holy, he clung to the word of God. In that moment where you feel abandoned by God, when you feel God forsaken, what do you do? You, my friend, ought to cling to the very word of God for the word of God was found on the lips of the God of the word. That as Jesus hung there, he declared Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I cannot understand the cross of Jesus Christ apart from substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in our place. In that very moment when darkness covered the land, so the darkness of your sin and mine covered the lamb of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. It's the Apostle Paul who writes in his Corinthian correspondence that, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus, not counting men's sins against them, but counting men's sins against him. That all of your sin and my sin was placed squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus so that Jesus is the sin bearer. That he carries the weight. He carries the punishment of every sin, of every believer, of every generation, in your life, in my life, he carries our sin and the punishment that comes from it. And in that moment, in some very real way, God the Father had to turn his head from God the Son. The reason is given in Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13, when the Old Testament prophet says, But you, O Lord, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wickedness. In some very real, genuine way, God the Father turned his head away from God the Son. And in that moment, Jesus felt God abandoned. This is something that had never happened before. And it will never happen again. This perfect... Unity of God, the father, God, the son and God, the spirit had never been severed, never been splintered, never been strained. Yet in this moment, the the weight of your sin and the weight of my sin was squarely placed upon Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus felt God forsaken and God abandoned in those few hours Jesus took the hell that you deserve. It's James Boyce who said it this way that Jesus was bearing our hell so that we may share his heaven. Jesus was bearing our hell so that we may share his heaven. Philip Bliss said it this way bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Jesus died in our spot. He took the punishment that we deserved. And in that moment, he felt a very real God forsakenness, and he declared, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? I think he's really going through Psalm 22. He quotes the opening line. And I think he probably meditates upon the entire psalm. The case could be made that Jesus literally was expecting God the Father to answer. But God the Father didn't answer. He didn't say a word. It appeared as if God did nothing. My friends, how do you handle sovereign silence? How do you handle life when you cry out to God and it appears as if God is not listening? What do you do when you pray to God and it seems as if God is doing nothing and he does not respond to your prayer? He doesn't act. He doesn't react. It seems as if he's doing nothing. How do you handle a self-imposed gag order from God? How do you handle it when God gives you the sovereign silent treatment? That's what he gives to Jesus. The case could be made that Jesus expects for God to swoop in and save the day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was silence. God did nothing the very next line of Psalm 22 says why are you so far from saving me so far from the words of my groaning if you were to read Psalm 22 you'd realize that the author of that Psalm is asking God to reduce the space that had developed between them so on four occasions he asked for God to be not far off He says it twice in verse one. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. In Psalm 22 verse 11 he says be not far off for trouble is right around me. In Psalm 22 verse 19 he says do not be far away from me. Come to me quickly for you are my strength. He's begging. He's pleading for the father to respond. And in Psalm 22 it appears as if God does nothing. How do you handle it when there's sovereign silence? What do you do when God doesn't answer your prayers? Once again, I think you and I have to cling to the word of God, just as Jesus did, that on our lips have to be the very word of God, word that is true, word that is timeless, For we have a choice to make. When God doesn't act the way we want him to act, we can wag our finger in the face of a holy God and we can demand certain things of him or we can simply come to him and say, you are God and I am not. So I'm going to cling to the word that you've given to me. That's what Jesus does. He clings to Psalm 22. He begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people that gathered there, they said, hey, he's calling for Elijah. That's mockery. Everybody on that Calvary hillside, they understood that Eloi, Eloi, Eloi is short for Elohim. Everybody knew he's crying out to God, yet in mockery, in sarcasm, they said he's crying out to Elijah. They read the last prophet of God. His name is Malachi. And at the very last chapter, Malachi says, as he's quoting the Lord, I will send The prophet Elijah, on that great and dreadful day of the Lord, they said, he claims to be Messiah. He said he's son of God. If he is son of God, if he is Messiah, then let's just see. He's probably calling Elijah. If Elijah shows up, we'll believe in him, because then we'll be ushered in that great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so we'll believe. Let's just see if it's Elijah. And they backed away. And in sarcasm, They took a sponge and they dipped it in some cheap wine. They stuck that sponge on a hyssop stalk, hoisted it into the air in the hopes that Jesus would wet his whistle and speak even louder. And then in arrogance, in sarcasm, in mockery, they stood back and they said, let's just see if, let's just see if Elijah shows up. I got to tell you, God showed tremendous restraint in that moment if that had been me if i was god and my son's life was hanging in the balance and those smart-mouthed smart-elic religious rednecks were popping off like that i would have called 10,000 angels I would have flung a few well-placed lightning bolts. They would have inserted in the left side of the neck. They would have exited out the right heel. I would have opened the earth and swallowed those morons. I would have personally gone down and taken my son off the cross. And I would have looked at them And I would have said, you're about to get what you deserve. That's what I would have done. But I'm not God. There are many reasons why I'm not God. And that's probably one of them. And I'm not making this up. I really think that's how I would have responded. That's my son you're talking about. That's my son whose life is hanging in the balance. And God the Father turns his head away from his son. Why? So that he could turn his face upon you. What love, right? That God would love, frail, fragile, Arrogant sinners like you and like me. The reason God the Father demonstrated such great restraint is because of his love for you. He turned his face away from his son so that he could turn his face in holiness towards you. Amazing love. How can it be that God my Savior died for me? This is amazing And so God demonstrated a great deal of restraint. Matthew seems to uh, summarize the death of Jesus in just uh, a few couple of words. He summarizes the death of Jesus by saying that once again, Jesus cried out in a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. This is remarkable. If you're not careful, that'll just gloss right over your head and you won't catch the detail and the significance of it that Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Think about all that Jesus has been through. He's been through at least half a dozen mock trials. He's been up all night long under a barrage of questions. He's been beaten. He's been bruised. He's been scourged. He has been crucified. He has been hanging there for six hours. He's, in, he's experienced tremendous blood loss. He should be weak as a kitten. And yet he screams out in a loud voice. Most people who are executed by the time they get to the end, they do not even have enough strength to whisper. Yet Jesus is still calling the shots, isn't he? Jesus is as strong at the end as he was at the beginning. Why is that? Well, he knows what's about to happen. He knows how it's gonna go. He also knows how Psalm 22 ends. Psalm 22 ends with a great glorious declaration that that those yet unborn will declare the righteousness of God because Jesus knows that what he's doing is not just for himself and the believers that he sees, but for all believers. That includes you and me. So Jesus... He cries out in a loud voice. His strength is not gone. He does not flicker and fade like a sparkler on the 4th of July. He doesn't just fizzle out like everybody else has been crucified. No, he's just as strong at the end. And he, in a loud voice, declares, I'm thirsty. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's Matthew's way of saying that Jesus said more, but I'm not going to record that. I just want you to focus on the fact that Jesus declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he says that Jesus cried in a loud voice, that phrase loud voice is megalēs phōne. From which we get the English word megaphone. Jesus serves as a megaphone. He is declaring what is happening. He will not quit until the mission is accomplished. He will not quit until your salvation is sealed. He will not quit until your redemption is purchased. Jesus will not quit. But when he says it's over, it will be over. He lays his life down. He has the authority to lay it down. And he has the authority to pick it back up again. And Jesus is God all by himself. So in a loud voice, Megalase phone. He cries. And it says that he gave up his spirit. That's a weak translation. That word actually means he sent away his spirit. He's still in charge. In the right moment, he says to his spirit, okay, it's time for you to leave now. He sent the spirit away. Everything is by his command. He's the conductor. He's the one who's choreographing everything that's going on at Calvary. Calvary. His life is not taken from him. He lays it down. His life is not snuffed out. He declares when it's over. He even says to his spirit, now this is when I want you to go and where I want you to go. So Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus is calling the shots even to the very end. Matthew says that when Jesus breathed his last, that there was an earthquake, the rocks split. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, which curtain is that? There are a lot of curtains in the temple. Some have said it's the curtain that divided the Jews from the Gentiles because through the death of Jesus Christ, Jesus knocks over every barrier, including the racial barrier. And so Jesus is declaring that every nation, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue can come and stand in the holiness of God because of the ripped body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly that's true. The gospel does break every barrier, especially the racial barrier. But I don't think it's that curtain that divides Jews from Gentiles. I think better still, it's that curtain that protected and divided the Holy of Holies. Behind that curtain, only one person could go, and that person was the high priest And behind that that curtain, only one person could go only one day of the year, and that was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And on that one day, when that one person could go behind that one curtain and stand on behalf of the people in the presence of the Lord, he would clean himself up. He could not take any dirt or sin into the Holy of Holies, into the very place where the Ark of God was housed, the very presence of God resided. So he was thoroughly cleansed. He would put on a a new robe, a robe with bells on. He would wrap a rope around his waist. He would go behind the curtain. His attendants would be standing outside the curtain. And they were there because they were always listening for the bells. And as long as the bells were ringing, that meant that he was moving and he was working and he was doing what he was supposed to do. But if the bells ever stopped ringing and there was a thud... That meant that that high priest could not withstand the holiness of God. Maybe he had seen too much of the glory of the Lord and he could not take it. And He had died in the very presence of God. Well, you can't have death lying there in the presence of God, there at the ark of God. So the attendants, if they did not hear the bells and they heard a thud, they would start pulling old boy out from behind the curtain. I think it's that curtain that's ripped in two from top to bottom. It's not ripped from bottom to top. It's not that man can get to God. God has come down to man. And God rips it from top to bottom. Symbolic that not just one man, but any person can stand in the presence of God. Not just one day, but any day of the year. Because of the accomplished work of our Lord Jesus Christ... You and I have the power and the privilege and the prerogative to stand and live and dwell in the holy presence of the Lord both now and forevermore. Praise his holy name. Matthew adds a detail that nobody else tells us. He says that in that moment of crucifixion, when Jesus breathed his last, sent his spirit away, That in that moment, there was such a mighty earthquake that not even the tomb could hold and house the saints any longer. And some of those dead saints rose from the dead. And that on that third day, when Jesus rose at the first fruit of resurrection, and when he entered the holy city of Jerusalem, so did those resurrected saints. Because on Easter Sunday morning, because of what God has done for us, that on Easter Sunday God's son and God's saints got up. And because of what Christ has done for us, not even death can hold us. So Matthew tells us that there was a great earthquake. And it's the Roman centurion who says, surely this man was the son of God. I've never seen anybody die like this. He must have thought. Nobody's ever died with as much strength as this man had. Nobody is ever calling the shots at the end. By the time anybody gets to the end, they are as weak as any as pond water. They are so weak, there's no way they can stand up and voice anything. Yet this man, he died with such strength. It was almost as if he was in charge, even until his last dying breath. Surely this man was a son of God. You know on the third day there was another earthquake. On the third day when Jesus got up from the tomb there was another earthquake. The angel descended, rolled the stone away and sat on top of it. it said to the women who had come to anoint his body, "Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here, just as he said." come and see the place where he lay then go and tell the Easter story always compels us to come and see and go and tell there's always a come and see that the tomb is empty and go and tell that Jesus is alive. You and I understand that the stone was rolled away not to get Jesus out, but to get us in so we could come in and see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the resurrected Lord. He is not here. He is alive and he's still alive. And because of that great news gospel, then we are compelled to go and tell a lost dying world that Jesus got up on Easter Sunday morning. So I came just to tell you this morning that Pilate couldn't kill him. Satan couldn't stop him. Death could not destroy him. The nails could not keep him. The stone could not conceal him. And the grave could not hold him. Jesus got up on Easter Sunday morning. I can handle the sovereign silent treatment of Friday Because I know that Easter Sunday is on its way. I can handle it when God is silent to me because I know he will not be muted forever. He has proven himself that he will not be muted forever. He will not impose upon himself a gag order for eternity. I can handle the sovereign silence of Friday because I know that Easter Sunday is on its way. God may be quiet now, but he's going to show up and show off sooner than later. God is God all by himself. So I come to declare that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin and left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So praise the one who paid my Debt and raise his life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raise this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raise this life up from the dead. His name is Jesus. And I can handle sovereign silence because I know that Easter is right around the corner. This morning, maybe you have never accepted this Jesus as your Savior. Today can be the day of your salvation. Maybe you're here today and you are a disciple of Christ. You are a faith follower. You're part of this faith family. But yet... Because of life circumstances, you are asking yourself the same Ichabod question that Jesus asked. My God, my God, why? Why does it feel as if you've forsaken me, abandoned me, forgotten about me? Oh, my God, my God, why? Am I going through this? Am I enduring this? Maybe that's you, friend. And this morning, I just want to encourage you to cling to the word of God. And maybe you just need to come, kneel here and pray. Maybe you need to pray Psalm 22. Maybe you're here today and you're looking for a place to belong. This is a great church for you to come and plug in. And maybe during this invitation, you want to come and join this faith family. Whatever it is, my friend, I want you to know that God is here. And he's drawing you unto himself. And don't give up on God, even in the moments of divine silence. Because just because he's muted now, doesn't mean he'll be muted forever. I can handle the sovereign silent treatment of Friday because I know that Easter Sunday is coming. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And we thank you, God, that you're in this place and that you're moving. And Lord, we thank you that you're drawing people unto yourself. And so in this moment, I pray that you will move and we will respond in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.